Good afternoon, my friends. The doctor is in the house. Welcome back to another episode of To Your Health with Dr. G on this great Wednesday. And I'm so excited to do another show for you guys today to bring it for you. See, the, the thing that we're going to be talking about today is something that is so important to me as a primary care physician. And you're going to meet my panel of Dr. Chang and Dr. Kovar and Dr. Belmaris in a bit. But the theme today that we're going to do is we're going to do something that I'm so passionate about. It's about vaccines. And today's show is entitled, Hashtag Not Fake News, Vaccines Save Lives. Because they really do, at the end of the day. And so what I want to do today is we're going to just break it down. We've got the experts here. We're going to be telling you the truth. And at the end of the day, we want people to leave here understanding that vaccines are safe, that they save lives, that they're designed to prevent or lower the burden of disease, especially when we talk about communicable diseases. And at the end of the day, this is just part of your lifelong process in public health. Vaccines are one of the most cost-effective preventive health measures available. That is a fact. Immunization, relate, immunization rates remain unacceptably, unacceptably low. That is also a fact. We're going to talk about some of that today. Preventing disease through vaccination is a lifelong process, and that it, we cannot underscore that so much as clinicians and healthcare providers. And there are rarely reasons to not get vaccinated. And remember this, you are far more likely to be seriously injured by a vaccine-preventable disease than by a vaccine itself. And so we're going to have the context, the framework of the conversation today centered around those themes. And I'm excited to introduce my panel to you in just a sec. But again, today, you know, this show, this is the, one of the reasons why, why, why we created this show. We created this show to basically give people the right information, leverage me, leverage my network of medical and public health experts, and let's move the needle. Let's stay healthy together. It takes a village. It takes a community. We're talking about reducing burden on health. And so really what we're all about here on this show, to your health with Dr. G, we're all about building trust and delivering truth. Again, my name is Dr. Mark Gomez. I'm a board-certified internal medicine physician at Edward Hospital. You're checking us out here on Facebook Live. We're also in studio live at Intellectual Radio's uh, radio studio. Listen, listen, at the end of the day, I get excited about this topic, so we're going to get right into it. But before we get into it, I want to hit you with a couple things. Number one, a quick disclaimer like we always do. So here we go. The content of To Your Health with Dr. G is for informational and entertainment purposes only, and that the content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, and or treatment. Further details can be found at www.toyourhealthwithdrg.com slash disclaimer. So we're here today on this great Wednesday. And again, what we really want to do is have a proper conversation. We set up everything that we're talking about today. And, it's, and, and again, this is my essence of being a primary care physician. This is, something I can, this is something that I do myself. I expect my family. We do this for all for the public good. And so we're going to tell the truth. And I want people to understand where we're coming from as clinicians. We care about your health. We're not trying to tell lies. There are no lies out there. We're trying to, trying to tell people the facts, the science, and everything that goes behind this. So what I want to do today as we set it up, I'm going to introduce my lovely panel. Real quick, check me out on my website, www.drmarkgomez.com. My handle is, of course, at To Your Health, Dr. G. So what we're going to do today is I'm going to introduce my panel. Before I get into that, I want to just welcome 
those followers back to the show. People that are out there that are new and checking us out, again, we're all about promoting health and promoting health the right way. Again, through our credentialed, licensed experts. <coughs> so, without further ado, I love my panel today, everybody. My panel's awesome. I mean, when I was coming with this show, I was like, listen, we're going to have a fierce panel because these are individuals that are professionals, they're in the trenches, they understand the data, and they understand the outcomes, and they want to do good things for their health and for their community. They're family people, just like me. We're family individuals who want to do the best for our children and for the next generation. We all want to live healthy and fulfilling lives. So my first guest, I got to welcome her back to the show because she's been on here before, no longer a rookie. You are a veteran now. I love it. So <laughs> why not? Uh, so my first guest, Dr. Susan Chang, uh, PhD, MPH. She's assistant professor and department chair Master of Public Health at Benedictine University in Lyle, Illinois. Check her out, www.ben.edu. Dr. Chang, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Mark. It's great to be here. Hey, give us a little bit about your background, where you did your studying, where you did your training, uh, where you got your credentials and everything like that, and tell us a little bit, maybe like an opening sentence or so, about this theme of vaccine save lives. Sure. Um, I think like a lot of my classmates, you know, I started off wanting to help people, right? I wanted to be a doctor when I was a little girl. And um, when I got to college, the overriding disease at the time was HIV, which to apparently kids under 20 isn't something they know a lot about anymore, so I find that interesting. Um, but I went off to grad school thinking I was going to be part of the HIV cure team, or the team that's going to make HIV go away. Um, so to me, the ability to find something like a vaccine, to find a cure, for something that we grew up thinking was going to be a deathly diagnosis was kind of my motivation to get into public health. So my graduate work was actually in the HIV population, trying to find treatments, trying to find better screening, um, trying to get people diagnosed early so that it becomes a disease they live with and not one they die from. Um, but on a personal note, I'm the mother of a five and a 10 year old. So vaccines and healthy communities is something that I'm personally invested in as well as professionally invested. Well, welcome back to the show, Dr. Chang. Excited to have you back again. My next guest, also a veteran of To Your Health, with Dr. G. Love it. Love the vets, but we, you know, we got to do it. We got to do. What we got to do. But we're here together because these individuals share the same mission. They share the same passions in improving the lives and health of our community and our families. So I got to welcome back to the show, Dr. Stephen Kovar, good friend of mine, board certified pediatrician at Kids First Pediatrics Ltd. Check him out, www.kidsfirstdocs.com. Dr. Kovar, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me again. I appreciate it. Please, or, uh, please tell us again about your background, where you went to medical school, where you did your training, and, and a little bit about a few opening statements about what this theme of vaccine save lives means to you. Well, I did my undergraduate training at University of Chicago and then my medical school at University of Illinois at Chicago and then my residency at Christ uh, down on the south side. Um, and, you know, I've been board certified in pediatrics, so obviously interested in, in, in pediatrics, and vaccines are a huge part of pediatrics. The biggest thing for me is it's such a personal level because um, in 19, my mother was born in 1945. In 1952, there was a great epidemic of uh, polio that hit Chicago. My mom uh, actually got polio. She was hospitalized at Rush, I think it was, no, I'm sorry, it was Mercy Children's, and she was in a... Uh, um, a body cast for seven years as they tried to figure out what was happening with her. They did multiple surgeries to try to um, uh, keep her spine good, but unfortunately everything, nothing really works. So she's been confined to a wheelchair her whole life. Now I'm seeing the effects of what polio does to a person. So when people say, oh, you know, we don't see these things, 
I can actually say I've lived through them. I mean, my mom's lived through them, and I, I get to see the effects of vaccine-preventable illnesses. Um, and unfortunately, because of decisions by some people, we're seeing things that were vaccine-preventable, we're seeing them make a comeback. And so from my, my part of, you know, from my job, I'm trying to keep kids as healthy as possible and to get these things out of the system so we don't have people that are ending up, unfortunately, like my mom is now, as essentially a, a functional quadriplegic because with the polio, using the wheelchair, using a manual wheelchair most of her life, now her shoulders are gone. So she has no, no mobility whatsoever. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a real disease and it has real effects and so the decisions people make have, have real consequences. Well, thank you, Dr. Kovar, for sharing that personal story because, I mean, you're really talking about the heart of the matter, and the heart of the matter is prevention. And it's really education at the same time, too, and that's really another reason why we created this program, to really have these kind of frank conversations and dispel the myths that are out there and tell the facts that are out there. Uh, as a clinician, you know, we've always seen, we've all seen those cases of somebody that's in the ICU um, holding on life support on something that could have been prevented by a vaccine. So, um, and my next guest can probably speak uh, mountains about that. My last guest, he and I had known each other for a long time. I was a fourth year medical student at Loyola in 2003. He was a first year infectious diseases fellow. Uh, and we just connected and been great friends ever since then. Uh, he plays a mean guitar. He was jamming out before this show. He was jamming outside on that guitar. That is the truth. Um, uh, he's just a fantastic gentleman, uh, a great clinician, taught me a lot on my days as his uh, medical student. He did not pimp me, pimp me out that much, but uh, that's all right. I, I love you for that. So uh, again, I want to welcome to the show Dr. Jaime Belmares Avalos. Uh, Dr. Belmares is a MD, MPH. He's a board certified infectious diseases specialist with Metro Infectious Disease Consultants. Check him out at www.midcusa.com. Dr. Belmares, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> please, please give us a little bit of your background. Where did you go to medical school? Where did you do your residency? Where did you do your fellowship and all that kind of stuff? And a little bit about the theme of vaccines for you today. So I went to medical school in San Luis Potosí, Mexico. Um, that's where I grew up. I ended up doing residency by a fortuitous route in Austin, Texas. And then by another fortuitous route, ended up at Loyola University, Chicago, doing fellowship and... I ended up staying here. And please tell us a little bit about just how this theme today of vaccines pertains to you as an infectious diseases specialist. So, as you were saying, I infectious diseases specialists normally we will be the one we will be the people called when patients are hospitalized with different types of infections, fevers, which means I often me and my partners, for example, will be, or my colleagues, will be the ones being called when people have complications from influenza, from pneumonias that could have otherwise been prevented by vaccination, for types of meningitis that are otherwise preventable by vaccination. So, yeah, this, these are things that don't it's necessarily real. have to happen. Yeah, it's real. Um, on a personal level, um, uh, I have relatives who suffer some certain types of malignancies, and I worry about them going to situations where someone could have been maybe carrying a disease that could have otherwise be preventable and since this relative is not able to receive vaccinations, one of the few actual indications not to receive vaccination, one of the few legitimate, I'll say, appropriate yeah. indications not to receive ones, uh, vaccinations, he could be exposed. Um, I have little kids too, 
they're getting their vaccines as appropriate, but that's also in my mind. Yeah. Well, again, you're on your mind as a, as a, as a, as a, I'm a father, as a physician, as a parent, as a, uh, as a member of planet Earth. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, but this is, again, our We're civic, all interconnected. It's our, it's our civic duty, there's no doubt about, because we don't want to have situations where we get into really difficult situations, pandemics, and everything like that. So, so we're going to talk about that a little bit more in detail. So now that you guys have met the panel, the credentials, this is real. So again, this is what we're all about. So what we're going to do right now is when people come in and see us in the office, we usually call it the chief complaint. And each week on the show, I invite my <coughs> experts on, and we talk about a topic, but we're trying to frame this context around, again, saving lives. And each week we do this kind of stuff, talking about a particular theme. And so when somebody comes into the office and sees us for an evaluation, we call it the chief complaint, of course. And so the chief complaint or the question of the hour is, what are we doing to increase vaccination rates in this country? In my opening remarks, I talked about how vaccination rates remain unacceptably low, even though we know that giving vaccines is one of the most cost-effective preventive health measures available. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit more, why we're seeing some barriers and everything. So we're going to get right into it, because we want you guys to have the information, and then you get the information, and then you go talk to your doctors and implement a plan, implement a strategy. If we're out there, if we could just change one person who may be on the fence about vaccines and get them vaccines, we're doing a good thing. If we, of course, we want to change a lot more than that because, again, the rates are unacceptably low. And I certainly say in my clinical practice on a daily basis when we give out vaccines, yeah, we, you, have to, you have to kind of spend half your time dispelling myths out there and hopefully that that person will get the vaccine. But I think with proper education, you're able to kind of convey that message and set aside any fears that they may have because a lot of those fears have been just, just from people talking with really no information to back that up. But there's a lot of other reasons why people have some barriers. I mean, I mean, for me, as a primary care doctor, I want people to come in and see me for a physical. And so and we still have an issue of people not going to the doctor in this country. So we want to create that urgency. And when we talk about vaccinations, we are talking about creating that urgency because we don't want the complications. So I'm going to ask the first question to Dr. Chang. So Dr. Chang, what are some examples of barriers that are, that are preventing people from getting vaccines? Just, just in general, in general uh, reasoning, what are some barriers that are out there? Sure. I also realized I didn't tell you my credentials. Did you want those? Oh, uh, yes, I did want your credentials, <laughs> Dr. Chang. Uh, well, well, the reason I'm bringing it back is because I think, you know, these days anyone with a smartphone can find a whole lot of opinions on the Internet, right? And what you've done today is a wonderful thing of gathering a panel of experts who have training in this, who have practical experience in this, who are in the fields. And, you know, I want to at least share them with you so our audience knows that this is not my yes, opinion. Please do. <laughs> this is, you know, uh, my... Uh, I guess, professional advice from someone who actually works in the field. Um, my undergraduate's at Northwestern University in physiology, and my graduate works at University of California, San Diego, where I have a master's and a PhD in epidemiology, which is the study of diseases. So I have a little bit of training. Yeah. In this thank field. you for clarifying. Um, thank you. Please just so that this isn't That's just, you know, yeah. like Aunt Susan's, you know, opinions <laughs> on the internet. Uh, so I think some of the barriers is something in public health that we see a lot, which is the more successful that public health and medicine is, the less you see the need for something, right? So the example is that when we look at childhood preventable um, diseases, a lot of times someone will say, well, why do you even need a polio va uh, vaccine anymore? Because no one gets polio. Why do you need MMR, um, mumps, measles, and rubella? Why do you need um, DTP, right? These are diseases that we don't see anymore, so aren't we just putting something in our bodies that is unnecessary because no one gets sick anymore? Um, so, to me, one of the barriers is that very few of us actually know someone with one of the diseases 
um, that has either been injured or has died from a disease, and that really decreases the urgency, I think, of getting a vaccine. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Kovar, what are some barriers that you see from your end as a pediatrician of, of vaccines? I think that the biggest barrier is kind of as, as she was saying, is, is it's a little bit of a miseducation. It's, it's looking at the news and hearing the newsman or newswoman saying something that your pediatrician or your doctor could be giving you that could cause autism, details at 10. Even though they're at the end of their little report, they say, well, there's really been no link to it. Um, you, you put the seed in there, and it's, it's, this, it's the seed of a weed. And just like any weed, you cannot pull it out, and you pull out some of it, and it grows up somewhere else. So it's, not to throw names out there, it's the Jenny McCarthy's of the world who are saying, here's the problem, my kid has this from a vaccine. And then looking online and saying, well, I had, my son or my daughter has this, this, and this, it must be from the vaccine. And that's the, the biggest problem. And the other problem as well um, is vaccines are just too good. And so, again, we don't see the things. So we don't see polio. And people say, well, we don't see polio in the U.S. The problem is we're no longer an isolated, you know, in the 1950s, polio, um, my mom, she, she got the polio, uh, she got polio a year, two years before the vaccine came out. Vaccine, vaccine so I just want to clear that. It wasn't, Dr. it wasn't a choice. Dr. Salk. Yes, exactly. So, um, so that she didn't have the choice of that. But, um, you know, and so when you used to say in the 1950s, well, there's, let's say there's an outbreak in sub-Saharan Africa. There wasn't as much travel. But now we're a global world, so you know that's. It, it might not be in the U.S., but where it is, there are planes flying to and from all the time. Go to O'Hare. There's people flying in from different countries where there might be outbreaks, uh, measles uh, from from Europe. And so you're thinking, okay, well, it's not in the U.S. It's not in the U.S. now. But as less people get vaccinated, now those people and you have that intermingling, and you don't know who's walking past you in Target. So there are all these, you know, these these exposures that you might not even know about. And so that, that, that's the problem, is that we're not seeing them in this country, but just because we don't see it here doesn't mean it doesn't exist and doesn't mean that you're still not possibly exposed to it. Dr. Belmaris, what are some of the barriers that you're seeing uh, as an infectious disease specialist? I think people have the idea that some of the vaccines, for example, specifically the flu vaccine, have the idea that I'm going to get the flu from the vaccine, or, oh my God, the side effects from the vaccine are going to be worse than the disease itself. Um, also, misinformation. The idea that, okay, vaccines can give you autism, the femerosal can give you other side effects, can give you neurological problems, which have been over and over reviewed and disproved. And as Steve mentioned, it's once that thought is there, it's really hard to show, like, look, there really is no evidence for this. But, um, and the other idea is that we have this idea that, well, Really, it's not in the U.S. If, one th if you learn one thing doing infectious diseases is that, guess what? We're all interconnected. What happens in other part of the world may have a way of coming here. Correct. You know, uh, it's interesting when you talk about those bears. I had, a, I had to share a funny story that a patient told me the other day. I was trying to convince him about getting a, getting a flu shot, and he goes, he's from Puerto Rico, and he told me that uh, when he was in Puerto Rico, a woman at his work, at his employer, got a flu shot, and she developed this, this tick this twitching disorder, and she was only able to walk backwards. And I kind of tried to not chuckle, because, you know, obviously I'm just like, that is one of the most bizarre stories that she, and he goes, she only was able to walk backwards. And I was like, you know, probably not true, but, but, but again, but people will share information and misinformation, and they will use it as a way to, to, to come to a decision and say, you know what, this happened to this person, I know that person, even though, like, 
that was probably the most rarest of side effects that could have maybe happened. Even, they, even if there was a correlation, they'd say, you know, I'm not going to do it because of that one person. So we irrationalize, or they rationalize, but it's a really irrationalization. So, so I think I think the thing that you're, that we're talking about is again this global community, this interconnectedness. You know, a hundred years ago, or even at the turn of the last century in 19 in 1900, the top cause of death in in the United States was pneumonia and influenza. Number two was tuberculosis. Uh, number three was actually diarrhea or gastro, some gastrointestinal disorders. Cardiovascular disease was number five, and cancer was number seven. Now, of course, we we through the through through sound science and medicine. Now those numbers are just obviously completely reversed. Where heart disease is the number one cause of death and cancer is the number two, but 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 communicable diseases are still real, and we don't think about that. Dr. Cobra, any comments about the, that that these diseases are still real? They're they're very very real, and you know one of the the cases when parents have questions about the the vaccines, I tell them I'm I'm kind of blunt with them, and I say you know the diseases that we're trying to prevent with these vaccines, especially the early ones, your DTaP, your polio, your Hib, which is a type of flu, H influenza. Um, these are the things that will kill babies, and, and I, I just put it out there. And in fact, we had a child who was a little too, they were um, uh, too young to receive any of the vaccines, and their grandmother just who was watching them just had kind of a quote-unquote uh, an allergic cough, just kind of just allergies, they just had a cough. It was actually pertussis. And the baby who was five weeks got pertussis. Um, and I remember getting pulled out of a room, and the nurse said, we have a mom on the phone, her baby's not breathing. And I said, why is she calling us? She needs to call 911. She called 911. The baby was intubated for two weeks because the baby had pertussis. And babies just stopped breathing. That's what pertussis does. So that's a reality. So in, you know, and that was no, through no fault of her own because the baby wasn't old enough. Um, but, that, but that's the reality of it. Is, and, and, and with babies, things are very quick. They go from 60 to zero quickly. There's no kind of the prodrome of like, oh, I feel this. It's, you know, what do babies do? They eat, they sleep, they pee, they poo. What's a sign of a sick baby? They might not eat well. They might not sleep well. They might not be peeing. And, and that could just be an irritable baby, baby, or it could just be the kid's just having an off day. You don't know, because they might not show a fever, or they might have a high fever. And, 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 and that's the problem. Is, and so with, with, with the vaccine-preventable diseases, they're real, and, and, they're, and they're, they're deadly. And that's the thing that we, you know, we need to tell people, and I, and I tell parents all the time, I'm not doing it to scare you. I'm doing this to be a realist, because I don't want to have another phone call like that, and I don't want you to ever have to make that phone call. Absolutely, and again, we're thinking. You know, they just just a few weeks ago, the U.S. Surgeon General, along with the CDC, um, released a press statement, and they released the data from the 2017-2018 influenza season, and the data was was very grave. Eighty thousand people died last year from the flu. Nine hundred thousand hospitalizations from the flu in this country, and a record number of children dying from the flu. Uh, uh, in a non-pandemic year. And so when we're talking about the stats, we're not going to spend a lot of time on the stats because we're talking about the substance of it. But sometimes these numbers paint a picture of the totality of what we're dealing with from a problem standpoint. Do Dr. Che, when you hear those kind of numbers, 80,000 dead, 900,000 hospitalizations, what, what, what comes to your mind as an epidemiologist? Well, like Steve, I have a lot of opinions. <laughs> um, I think what's interesting is, you know, you brought up causes of death earlier. And when I hear, well, do vaccines really work, right? What is the point of vaccines? Um, what people don't realize is if you look at the things that people died from, it was communicable infectious disease. Mm -hmm. If you look at causes of death, especially for those under 10, the top six would all have been infectious diseases. And I think about the hysteria, the appropriate hysteria that parents have after a school shooting. Um, or after you know something happens like the Boston Marathon bombing, 
right? There are certain events that really capture our attention. It's the sensationalization of medicine in the media. But for something like influenza, it's something that people think happens to other people. This isn't something that happens to us. And yet, we're seeing from the numbers that as rates of vaccinations go down, the protection in our communities go down as well. There are babies who are too young for the um, flu vaccine. There are babies who are allergic to the ingredients, or children who are allergic to the ingredients of the vaccine. There are children who have um, cancer. There are adults who have cancer, who have immune um, compromised situations where they can't be vaccinated. Um, I think the numbers show us that we are failing our fellow neighbors, that we're failing our community members and our responsibility to protect each other. And sometimes the reasons that you get vaccinated aren't necessarily to protect the person who's getting vaccinated, but those around you and your role as caregiver. Um, so I guess the numbers to me show that, you know, we're coming to a precipice. We're coming to a point where we are no longer appreciating the safety net that vaccines and antibiotics have given us, right? We live in a very kind of um, fragile safety net that if broken, if disturbed, you know, all it takes is for vaccination rates to go down or for a new strain of flu to come up or a new strain of antibiotic resistant bugs to come up that we don't have the medicine to prevent. And we're in the 1800s again. You know, we're about a couple of good diseases away from being back in those years. Uh, Dr. Belmaris, what do you think about, uh, what do you think about more so the vulnerable, because what Dr. Chang is talking about is, is yes, you know, you're getting the vaccine, but there's a lot of people that are vulnerable, uh, compromised immune systems, are still developing, um, people with chronic medical conditions like diabetes or heart disease or liver disease or lung disease. Those are the vulnerable. And so you see if an infection, what, what does an infection do to somebody who's got an underlying chronic disease? What do you, what do you see in there? It depends, but in general, think of it this way. Um, in general, most people, you, we all know that someone with uh, no immune compromise and the less comorbid conditions you have, that is to say, the less chronic diseases you carry with you, the probability is that the outcome of any acute infection is going to be better because you're, there's less that you're swimming up against. The more that you have to deal with, um, the more that your body is trying to cope with at the same time, and the more things that can go wrong at any given time in the course of an acute illness that's happening at the same time. Now, assume, let's say that you get an infection, your diabetes, your sugars can go up because diabetes gets, tends to get out of control during an acute infection. Uh, that is without even thinking that it's something preventable with a vaccine. Now, the tragedy of this is, let's say it's a pneumococcal pneumonia. Very preventable, most of the time with a vaccine. With a good vaccine. Uh -huh. This pneumococcal pneumonia that could have been preventable suddenly develops infected fluid. We call it adempagima. Now you need a chest tube to drain that fluid. Now you end up, or you end up in a breathing tube, a ventilator. You end up in the ICU. How much that's gonna cost? How many extra days in the hospital? And since you're on a breathing tube hooked up to a ventilator, you cannot move, you get the condition. That person eventually gets unhooked from the ventilator. It still needs to go to a rehab. The man wants to go home. He's very weak. He can't. And you see how this continues. It that's, doesn't take that much. It's a, it's a, it's a cycle. It's a, it's yeah, a just one person. Downward spiral that. on that one. And, and we know that the data has shown that, that in those that are vaccinated, in those kind of examples, for at least the adult population, and I imagine it would be the same in the, in, the, in the pediatric population, but if somebody does get vaccinated and they do want to end in an ICU, they're more likely to leave the ICU alive. They spend less days in the hospital and can recover faster because that vaccine has softened the blow to an extent. 
you know, we're still, you know, there's not, there's not, uh, I mean, the vaccines that are out there, they're so well, well constructed. I still tell my patients there's not a 100% vaccine, but I will say the the new, uh, the new, uh, uh, Herpes zoster vaccine, 97% effectiveness is pretty, 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 pretty darn good. Mm -hmm. uh, when you're talking about effectiveness, when they, people age 50 to 69 and 91% effective, people 70 and older, that's phenomenal numbers. Uh, but, uh, but, but you're talking about the, the reality of the cost, and then you just outlined a perfect scenario of somebody who gets sick and the downstream effect. The dollars are are are, are worrisome, and the the, the recovery is going to be tremendous. So, Dr. Kovar, let me ask you this question. Say somebody is unwilling to vaccinate. What do you kind of tell that person? You know, I know you try to give them your your, your spiel, but 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 are there any safe measures that that person can do uh, to protect themselves if they choose not to vaccinate? Well, you know, we we have a, a pretty tough vaccine policy in our office, and we we promote all the vaccines that are state mandated. We we go we always um, talk about the ones that are uh, recommended. If someone chooses not to, the biggest thing I find out is why. What is their reasoning before uh, for it? And you know, a lot of times it's, oh, I know of someone who something. I know I heard this or I read this, and I always say that's great that you read this. Let's talk about the science, and you know, let's talk about what happens with it. Um, and you know, we try to figure, try to kind of find out what what that um, uh, what their hangup is on that. And if they you know still have some concerns, you know, I, I always tell them. At the end of the day, this is always your decision, you know, to vaccinate your kids. I tell them, unfortunately, I mean, I'm old enough that I've seen a lot of the effects of what vaccine preventable diseases can do, but not just with my mother. I've seen, you know, people think, oh, it's just chickenpox. They're going to get some little bumps and it's all good. Well, I've seen the kid that actually got the encephalitis from chickenpox, and that kid did not do well. So is that a, a common risk? It's not common, but here's the, here, the analogy I give them is, let's say it's a 1 in 10,000 risk, just to pick a high number. Even let's make it 100,000. If I can make a gun that had 100,000 chambers and I put one bullet in and I spin it, are you putting that gun to your child's head? And if you can safely say, I'm going to put that gun to my child's head and I'll pull the trigger, that's your decision. That wouldn't be my decision because you know what? It's a 1 in 100,000, 10,000, whatever you want to make it, you still got that one chance. It's like the, the lottery, you know what? How many people were just paying to get, playing to get up 1.6 billion? You know, your odds were, I think, 1 in 88 million. For one person in South, in South uh, Carolina, they beat the odds. These are not the things you want to beat the odds on. And that's what I kind of talk to them about. And I make sure we make sure that they're educated. And I'll spend as much time as I need to. And, you know, uh, just to kind of go over stuff, we make sure we have all the handouts. And we always make sure that we're giving them good handouts, not, you know, because you can look up anything on, on the web and everything that's, you know, look up anything. My horrible experience with Tylenol, with water. I mean, anything can be, can be quote-unquote bad. And that's the problem, is that people are not looking at the science, they're looking at the sensationalism of whatever it is. And so we just try to cut away with that. And a lot of times I can get them to, you know, I can talk to parents, and as long as we're talking logically, and I don't downgrade, you know, degrade them and don't make them feel stupid, because that's not my job. My job is to educate. And I tell people, if you leave my office with a little bit more education, then I've done my job. And, but I want everyone to ask me questions. I don't also just want people just doing stuff because I tell them, like, have questions, let's answer them. Let's make sure we have a dialogue, because this is still your child at the end of the day. You know, as a physician, I, you know, I think my job as, as a physician, I'm, I'm really more of a consultant in the sense that, that I'm trying to, I, I can't make you change all your habits. I'm trying to make you do things better and hopefully have that consistency. And you're right, the education component is huge. And, and, and again, sometimes we have to just sit down and have that discussion with them. And I'll be honest, I'll take as much time as I need to try to, to, try to get somebody to understand 
and then have them make the decision. Uh, but, but I'm willing to have that conversation with somebody and give them the information so they can make the right decision and I trust they make the right decision. The challenge is, of course, as more and more people are, are re reducing their or rejecting the vaccinations, it makes it more harder as clinicians. So let me ask this question, Dr. Chang. What, what can we do better as, as public health educators or as clinicians? What can we do better to move the needle? We talked earlier that, that, that the rates are unacceptably low. By the way, last year in 2017, only half, only half of pregnant women actually received a flu shot, and the goal is 80%. And so it's actually at 49%. So we can go into easy conversations about low birth weight and fever and all that kind of stuff. But how do we move the needle from a public health perspective as you're, as you're looking at things from an epidemiology standpoint? Sure. Um, what I think is really interesting from any public health standpoint is what motivates people, right? So, because I think the science has been out there. I think very few people are not aware that the science and the research is available. The question is, what motivates you? What helps you walk through that door, make that appointment, take that time to go get a flu vaccine? So I think analogies are helpful. Um, the one I've been using recently is thinking of vaccines like seatbelts, right? You may not get into a car accident. You may choose not to wear your seatbelt nine times out of 10, 99 times out of 100. But man, you get into a car accident and you are grateful that that seatbelt works, that those anti-lock brakes work, that the airbags work. Um, public health infrastructure and medicine and vaccines are very similar. You may never get exposed. You may never get the flu. But if you do, that one in 100,000 chance, you're not the one in the hospital for 90 days. Um, the other message that we've been trying to use is not so much to talk about the one in 100,000 possible uh, possibility of getting exposed, but what it would do to your current life. So if you take a minute and think about everything you do from the time you wake up until the time you go to sleep again, everyone who counts on you, the amount of work that you are responsible for, how many sick days can you take, right? One average healthy adult, um, this just happened in St. Louis, was out for almost six months. He was in a hospital for two months recovering from the flu. He was a healthy 39-year-old man. How many days can you take off? So I think the public health message is, you know, this is something that protects your ability to function in the ways that you need to, and not just the, it's not the zebras and the unicorns, right? We're looking for the ponies and the horses. Excellent. When you think about, you talked about the healthy person, the previously young, healthy adult, which may have that mindset of that, hey, I'm not gonna get anything, I'm good, I'm young and healthy. And that could be the absolute, uh, the absolute far from the truth. We actually know when you look at, at, the, at the flu pandemic in 1918, that it gave the Spanish flu, that when you look at some of the research models back on it, it was actually some of the more younger, healthier people that were succumbing to the flu itself versus the weakened immune system, uh, compromised immune system people. And the reason, at least they thought behind that, is because of, uh, of the massive systemic, what they call this cytokine storm, and these um, inflammatory markers just being released into the bloodstream and basically essentially causing multi-system organ failure. But, but because their immune system was so strong, they, had, they mounted, mounted this robust immune response that really took them out. And when you talk about the Spanish flu, by the way, a lot of people cannot, don't remember that, but it wiped out 5% of the world's population in two years. It was, it's unreal. And that kind of pandemic, I mean, we never want to see that again, but you're right, as you said earlier, Dr. Chang, we could be a few steps away from something bigger. And this is the importance of why we're trying to gather here today and gather everything here. Dr. Belmaris, talk to me about the, about the concept known as herd immunity. What's your thought on that from an infectious diseases standpoint? So remember when I mentioned earlier that one of the things you learn in infectious diseases is that we're all interconnected. So herd immunity refers to the idea that the more you have people protected 
for a communicable disease via vaccination, the barrier for a disease to actually catch on and begin spreading in a, popu in a defined population, the barrier for that to happen begins to be higher and higher for that particular disease. Why? Because any disease to, for any disease to transmit and to become an epidemic, you need for that disease to get to person one, person number two, person number three, and every single person is going to be doing that. I mean, uh, but if the, this microbe an organism goes to the first person in the chain, and then suddenly, okay, the chain is broken. Why? Because this per person is vaccinated. Okay, next one. Another link of the chain is broken because that person is vaccinated. There might be one. Okay, this person catches the disease. Yeah, but the next person over is vaccinated. It stopped. Most diseases have only a limited time in which they can be transmittable. This is another viral concept. It varies between disease and disease. We call that incubation period. People can be asymptomatic in the meantime, which means you feel great, you don't know, you can pass it around. But if you've been vaccinated, this one is not being passed around. So that's the end of it. That's what herd immunity means. The idea that since you since you have so many people vaccinated in a defined population, whatever micro happens to catch, to get in there, it cannot move. You killed it. It's it. That's it. And Dr. Barbaros, explain what happens if the herd immunity goes down. Well, basically, you rebuild the chain for that microbe. Like goes to person one, person number two, person three, four, five. It doesn't take that much. For some, think about it. For some diseases, for example, um, I want to say measles. The time the measles, the virus hangs on on airdrops for about two, three hours after a person has been in a room. So you just happen to walk in. This room that we're on, someone comes in, they catch it. And that person goes to another store. There you have it. And there's a big measles outbreak going on in Europe right now, which mm -hmm. is just very scary. And Dr. Kobar uh, alluded to it a little bit earlier. So, it, it can be, the devastation can be real. Uh, and you're looking at a community that really had not been vaccinated at all. And so it's propagated, and so person to person. I like your analogy. Yeah, by the way, the panel today has given some great analogies. I like that analogy, the chain, Dr. Chang's analogy of the seatbelts. Dr. Kobar, I know you got a whole bunch of analogies <laughs> in you, my friend. I, I know do. you do. But, but, but we're talking about the seriousness, but, but we're trying to break down these concepts so people can understand them and then apply them. And so, so I think having this kind of frank discussion uh, is an important thing, Dr. Belmars. I was going to say, I heard someone also, I don't know where this has come from, I don't want to take the credit, but someone compared it to a football, um, to, a, to a line of a football defense. So basically, your hair immunity is your football line. If you're not, don't get anybody vaccinated, because what? They're, they're going to come and take the, the quarterback. They're going to sack the quarterback. They're going to sack the quarterback. That's it. I like the football analogy. That was a great one. But but you're, but again, we, whatever kind of technique it takes to get the message across, this is what we're talking about. So again, in understandable terms, so we can move the needle. So I want to ask, I want to ask uh, Dr. Kobar this question. Um, so Dr. Kobar, obviously, when we think about vaccines, you know, we're talking about obviously infectious infectious diseases and the things that can happen. But there are vaccines that are out there that can lower somebody's chance of cancer. Mm -hmm. um, What's your experience with the HPV vaccine? You know, because because we're still finding some barriers. Right. Uh, I actually did a, um, and actually last it was last year. Dr. Chang invited me out to Benedictine University, and one of the audience members did ask about whether or not their child should be vaccinated against human papillomavirus. And uh, I don't know if it was me or another panelist, but somebody said, 
uh, do you want your daughter to get cancer? Right. So give us a little comment about that HPV yeah, I think uh, H vaccine. Yeah, HPV is actually my favorite vaccine because of what it prevents. And, and I tell parents, I think there's the misconception that people think, oh, I'm going to get this and suddenly my kid's going to go out and start sleeping around. That's not what this is about. It's that you don't know what's going to happen. And I tell parents all the time, the moms, um, you know, think of this. The, the, the difference is you go to the doctor all the time. As a, as a woman, women go to the doctors a lot more than men. You would probably agree. There's no doubt about and that. And women are going because they're going to see their ob gynees. And I say, and I tell them, I say, think about it. You're going for your OB for your yearly. You'll go, you know, you'll get the postcard. Hey, normal path, normal path, normal path. You have an abnormal path. Come in. You got caught. The problem with guys is we don't go to the doctor. And the only time we go to the doctor is when our wife, our girlfriend, uh, someone has said, you know what, I'm really tired of your cough. Can you just get that checked? I think it's something. And the guy goes, it's nothing. And then what happens when they go, oh, by the way, sorry, yeah, it actually is something. So for guys, one of the big things is throat polyps that can turn cancerous. So for guys, eh, I don't know, I just, I, I just swallow, it gets stuck in the middle of my throat. So, eh, you know, I just take smaller bites. I'll take smaller bites. And then by the time they actually go and say, fine, it's, it's, it's cancer, it's spread. Um, I, I, you know, and, and because they're not going, and so by the time they finally go, it's too late. And then you're talking head and neck radiation. I give the example, my wife's a cardiologist, and she says the number of times that, the, that there's a man sitting there with his wife, and he's like, I don't know why I'm here. She's just telling me I gotta go. I think it's just heartburn, it's indigestion. And when she comes back, she goes, okay, you actually have a coronary artery that's 99% blocked, and we're taking you to the cath lab now. She's like, that happens a lot more than you think. And, it's, and, she's, and on their way, she's like, you better kiss her and tell her, hey, you know what, you saved my life. And that's the thing with the HPV. The vaccine that we're doing now, it might not do anything for you when you're in your mid-teens, when you're in your early 20s, but it's gonna, it can come back to haunt you in your 30s and your 40s when you're least likely to do anything about it. And then when you finally do, it's too late. And so the, the commercials about it are, it's the, it's the kid who's, uh, you know, it's a guy who's like in his 30s and it's kind of going back in time. And, uh, you know, it starts with it and it kind of makes you almost choke up. It's like the 12-year-old kid is like, Mom, did you know that I could have been, you know, you could have prevented my cancer? And it's like, as a parent, you're like, yeah, you know, water and I've, seen it, I've seen the commercial. Yeah, and it's, you're speaking the truth. And it turns out that really that, that now, uh, well, it just got a new indication uh, about a week or so ago, and now the HPV, HPV vaccine can go to age 45. But you're right, when it comes to head and neck cancers, 70% of head and neck cancers um, uh, um, have been uh, linked to HPV, but when you're looking at cervical cancer, I mean, I tell my patients, I go, this is a basically a cancer vaccine. Like, get this vaccine, hepatitis B, hepatitis B vaccine, another one that can help uh, lower somebody's chance of getting liver cancer. So I want to do this, guys. You know, we're going to have some good discussion, but I want to make sure we get into the myths versus facts, because that's an important thing that we do today. We're gathered here to, to really break down some barriers, but hopefully give people encouragement to seek care with their clinicians. Ask questions to your doctor. If you don't have a doctor, get a doctor. Ask these questions because these may be important for you and your family. So what I want to do is I want to basically ask uh, the panel. I'm going to make. I'm going to. I'm going to uh, say a statement, and then the panel is going to say either myth or fact, and then they're going to basically give me a one or two line stance on why it's either a myth or a fact. So here we go. Myth versus facts. This is the hashtag not fake news. Uh, vaccine save lives versions. Version. All right. So uh, I'll ask this one first to Dr. Belmares. Uh, vaccines contain many harmful ingredients. Myth or fact? Myth. Excellent. Uh, you want to give a one-liner or a two-liner on that one? If not, I'll say a one-liner or two-liner. <laughs> so um, I'll give you an example. There was, I don't remember which year, but there was this big uproar that the thimerosal in some vaccines could create neurological damage. There was the National Institute of Medicine actually created a big review, conducted a big review of this, they found that there was no 
real evidence of this being an issue, despite that um, they actually decrease significantly amount of timerosaline vaccines. It's negligible. I mean, there's, there's no, there, it's almost nothing. So, and pretty much most vaccines, they go through a very extensive, really hardcore quality process to make sure that there's nothing there. Absolutely. That, I mean, that can be potentially harmful. And even after they went to market, they still, there's still a process to report, hey, there might actually be an issue. It's still there. It's called VAERS vaccine adverse effect reporting system. People can report concerns of a vaccine still, even after after that. Yeah, I tell people vaccines have three things. It's got a, it's got basically a, a suspending fluid. Uh, it's got a preservative slash stabilizer, and it's got something to enhance mm -hmm. uh, or an adjuvant. Uh, but these are all safe. And a lot of the ingredients of that people say, well, this may do this, this may do that. Uh, a lot of those things are found in a lot of household things that we have. Uh, from detergents to bar soaps to deodorants, even some of the foods that we have, there's there's some of these things in there. So we're talking about trace amounts to stabilize something so that so that maybe a germ may not grow by it's sitting there, or so maybe so a vaccine does when it gets exposed to light or heat or humidity that it doesn't basically become render itself ineffective. That's what it is. So these are very very safe, uh, without a doubt, and the science backs that up. Let me ask the next statement. Here we go, Dr. Kovar, right. myth versus facts. Vaccines cause autism. That's my statement. <laughs> so that's that is an incredibly <laughs> mythical statement. Yes. Uh, like a unicorn I'm, mythical. Uh, unicorn. Yes. Uh, I'm Mr. Wakefield is the uh, purveyor of Mr. that. Mr. Tim Wakefield. It used to be doctor, but um, because of his horrible, uh, I'm sorry, oops, his horrible uh, decision and his his bad research, uh, he was actually stripped of his uh, his uh, physician license and stripped of the doctorate degree. Um, so that's, uh, and, and just for anyone listening, um, he was actually trying to create a measles, mumps, rubella vaccine to compete with the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine that's out there. So if I can discredit the one thing that, the one company that makes it, and then, oh, I just happen to have one, it was a money-making yeah, thing. Um, so unfortunately, he put that out there. People got on the bandwagon, and again, people say, oh, we see more autism now. Well, the other thing is we also do a better job. We actually have developmental pediatrics as part of just a general pediatrician, but we also have developmental pediatricians. So we take a lot more interest in the development of a child. When I was a kid, I think my doctor came in, looked, listened to my heart, said everything's good, shot and go. Now we actually talk to make sure that kids are developing and hitting their milestones. And so when we see things happening earlier, we can address that, but you can't really get any kind of a diagnosis of autism or even some of the kind of rumblings of it until you're about 12 months to 15 months when you're having a little bit more socialization and when that's not hitting then we can make a little bit at least a diagnosis the problem is when you're getting the measles mumps rubella vaccine right around, right around that time correct thank you yeah. uh myth versus fact dr chang here we go myth versus fact uh i don't need to vaccinate my child because all the other children around him are already immune myth. and please comment a little bit on that one um, I'm going to take a page from Dr. Covert's uh, book on, you know, you're just being selfish, right? I'm sorry, but if we all think that, we would all stop vaccinating our children. It's the idea that only, you know, the responsible ones need to do it so that the rest of us don't need to. Well, herd immunity, as you heard earlier, only works when all of us pitch in, when we participate. So. Thank you. Uh, um, Dr. Belmar, I, I was going to say, to add on to that, how do you know that everybody's immune? Right. How do you know? There you go. You're right. Did you ask them? No, nobody has those conversations. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Bob Myth versus fact. Here we go. Uh, I'm an adult 
So I don't need any vaccines. Myth. All right, please comment. So there's still, a, depending on the particular situation, adults still require certain vaccines. Uh, for example, every year, at the very least, require an influenza vaccine. Uh, some adults still require pneumonia vaccines. There are others, but I'll give you those examples. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Dr. Kobar, myth versus fact. Here we go. Natural is better. We shouldn't put foreign substances like vaccines into our bodies. Uh, that would be a myth as well. Yes, uh, natural, you know, the natural immune system, our immune system is there for a reason, and it's a great immune system, and babies, just for the record, have an amazing immune system, so the vaccines that we're giving at two months old is not going to overwhelm their system. It's great, but if we can do something to enhance it and to make it ready, the best way I think of it is kind of think of your body like a castle. If someone can give you a bit of a warning, like, hey, you're going to be attacked at some point from the north or from the east or whatever, if you're prepared and you have the, the archers ready and the boiling oil ready to go, if those attackers do come, there's my analogy, you're already you there. Did it. So you got, you got the analogy, <laughs> you, you already have the archers, analogy, by the way. you just Thank have you. them already. Thank you. Uh, you got Dr. my analogy. <laughs> Dr. Chang, see, everybody on the panel did an analogy today, except for I haven't done one, but that's all right, I'm the host, so I'm putting you guys in the hot seat. All right, here we go. Uh, Dr. Chang, myth versus fact, here we go. I'm trying to select one on my list for you. Ah, this is a good one. I think we might have answered this one, but I'm going to say it anyways. Vaccines are not adequately tested for safety. What? <laughs> uh, please explain a little bit. Uh, the FDA approval process is incredibly long and incredibly rigorous for anyone who's worked in clinical trials or knows anything about clinical trials. There are multiple phases in it. It's tested for how lethal it is, how much dosage you need, what the long-term effects are, what the side effects are. And as Dr. Belmar um, said earlier, there's also the VAERS system, which means that if you ever have an injury, you report it, and we take that data, and then we analyze it to see if there are trends. Um, there actually have been some medicines, not vaccines, that have been potentially harmful, and those were pulled because of some of the side effects that were reported. Thank you. So we got about five minutes left, and so what I want to do is kind of bring this on home, because we can have this conversation about, again, the importance of vaccinating uh, yourself, your child, your family, your loved one, your neighbor. Again, it's a civic responsibility in my humble opinion. And I think that's, a, that's an opinion of people on this panel. Um, so what I want to do is, at the beginning of the show, we talked about the chief complaint, the question of the hour, what can we do to try to encourage more vaccination and get the rates up. Uh, when we see patients in the office and we're done with them, uh, and I'm done with our evaluation, we call it the assessment and plan. And the assessment and plan is when we basically uh, give the diagnosis with a treatment strategy to uh, fulfill and go from there and have, most importantly, have a follow-up. So as we're bringing this home, I'm going to start with Dr. Belmaris. Dr. Belmaris, give us like a couple take-home points about the importance of this topic today about vaccine saves lives. What do you want people out there to know about this topic? Can I say just do it? <laughs> yes, you can. Like, uh, just do it. You can say it three times. Uh, you said it two already right now. So. Just do it. Okay, so you said three times, so there's your three Let's takeaways. Just do it. Um, just do it. Okay. Right. Thank you, Dr. Belmars. You hit the head on the nail. Dr. Kobar, give us a couple take-home points. I think the biggest thing is definitely make sure you're having a conversation with your physician, be it uh, internist, family practice doc, a pediatrician. Uh, OB Gunny, have a conversation with them, especially if you have any questions about it. Our job is to educate. And if you go there, and if you come in with questions and you feel comfortable with it, then you're going to be a lot more likely to get it. At the end of the day, the vaccines, the, the problem with vaccines is they're too good. And we're getting rid of the problems that we used to see, the things that killed, um, that killed, actually my grandmother's, she had three siblings born in the early 1900s. They died from the flu epidemic. 
So my family just is not lucky with vaccine with uh, vaccine preventable diseases, I guess. But the point is, lives like it changes lives, and you know as been, as it's been alluded to, a vaccine preventable disease might not be fatal, but it sure can change your life. Uh, you know, a child who can't get a vaccine for some reason, uh, we have children with transplants, so they can't get a vaccine. So if your kid comes in and you didn't vaccinate against chickenpox, and you come in and you just happen to be in there the same time they are, three weeks is the incubation period. So your child might have been healthy, that child might, that with a transplant could have been healthy, but now three weeks later your kid comes in with chickenpox, I now have to call that person on the transplant and say, hey, funny story, your child might have been exposed to chickenpox, so now you're going to go to the hospital and you're going to get an immunoglobulin that can be several thousand dollars that may or may not be covered based on someone else's decision. So, yes, it's your decision, but your decision has community reactions. Thank you. Dr. Chang, a couple take-home points? I think very quickly, um, I would say, one, lead by example, right? I think everyone on this panel today has children and families. How many of us have vaccinated our children? All of us. How many of us have vaccinated ourselves? I got so, <laughs> you know, I would never advise someone in the community to do something I'm not willing to do myself. You know, I'm willing to vaccinate my children. They're completely on schedule, and they get their annual flu shot every year. So lead by example. Um, and I think the last point I'm going to make is that um, how many of us remember the H1N1 epidemic uh, about, like, eight years ago? Mm -hmm. And I was sitting in the Will County, um, I think it was a high school um, gymnasium, actually, and they had a few doses of this H1N1 vaccine. They didn't have enough for everybody, but they had some. And I remember waiting for four hours with mm -hmm. my father, who was older, and his um, and my stepmother, and my two-year-old child. He was it's just eligible, and there was absolutely no way I was leaving that gymnasium without mm -hmm. vaccinations for my family. There are families in Africa that work through the Gates Foundation who wait for days to get an MMR vaccine for their child, who walk for days to get there and then wait there for days because the very thing that we question whether or not we should do or you know could do is something that other families are willing to give their lives to do. And I think that brings a certain amount of responsibility that we really need to check our privilege and understand that this infrastructure that protects us is fragile and part of our responsibility. Thank you, Dr. Chang. And you're talking about gratitude, and, and I just love that word. And, and kind of my take-home points are this, and I want to kind of share a quick story. This week in the office, I took a picture of myself getting my flu shot. I didn't take the picture, my, my uh, nurse did. And uh, put it on social media because the U.S. Surgeon General challenged physicians in the country two weeks ago to get a picture of themselves uh, getting their flu shots and then send it out to him. So I got my picture liked by Dr. Jerome Adams, the Dr. Jerome Adams, anesthesiologist, U.S. Surgeon General, and he said, way to go, Dr. Mark. But really what I'm trying to say is that you know, it is our responsibility as a physician, as a parent, as a husband, uh, as, 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 a, as a member of the human race. You know, this is something that's important to us. We don't want to see the burden of disease. We want to see people live healthy and active and fulfilling lives. Vaccines are safe and they're a way to prevent disease so you can enjoy your life's purpose. So that being said, I want to thank my guests today, Dr. Jaime, Jaime Belmarez, Dr. Stephen Kovar, and Dr. Susan Chang. Hey, everybody. This has been a great discussion. Uh, in two weeks, I'll be back. I'm taking next week off for Halloween. By the way, I'm dressed up as Michael Jackson. <laughs> uh, it's true. Uh, but I'll be back in two weeks. But again, this has been just a great discussion, breaking down barriers, talking about access, and talking about changing lives. You've been listening to me, Dr. G, To Your Health with Dr. G, live on Intellectual Radio, also on Facebook. Check me out on my website, www.drmarkgomez.com. Peace out. <laughs>